Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Chesler. Before we launch into our episode this week, I want to remind everyone that the O'Reilly Design Conference will take place March 19th through the 22nd, 2017 in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com forward slash design con for more information and to register. Now to our episode. This week, I sit down with Dan Mall, founder and director of Super Friendly. We talk about working with friends, pricing your design work, and charting your own learning path. Enjoy the episode. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so I'd love for you to start and tell me a little bit about your design cooperative, Super Friendly, how it works, um, and how do you find your super friends? <laughs> Yeah, sure. So I have a fairly non-traditional company, the design collaborative that I run. Um, it's called Super Friendly, and I'm the only employee. So I'm, uh, I'm the only full-time employee, but oftentimes uh, the projects that we do have multiple people on them. So um, the business model is called the Hollywood model, if anybody wants to research it. Of course, I brand it and I call it the Super Friend model. <laughs> and basically what that means is that for every project that Super Friendly does, I bring together a team of people to work on on those projects. Some of those are contractors. Some of those are other shops, maybe design shops or research shops or other design shops. Um, sometimes it's moonlighters, you know, people that have full-time jobs that want to do something night and weekend. So depending on the project, as long as they're the right people, I try to make it work with with wherever they're from or whatever they're they're also currently doing. It's kind of the way that Hollywood makes movies. You know, if you think about a movie studio, it doesn't employ directors or actors or things like that, but they bring those people together. And they make them film together for a year. And then they all kind of go their separate ways into the night after that. Hmm. So I think that there's an interesting parallel between, you know, you can make something of high quality in that way, in that model. And I think digital work is not really an exception to that. So that's, that's basically the business model. It's been, you know, I started Super Friendly in 2012 and I've been running it ever since then like that. And so far, so good. Um, as far as Super Friends go, I am, I am almost never you know, Googling for people. Like if I need a PHP developer, I'm not like Googling PHP developer. And, and I, I don't outsource, you know, overseas or anything like that. The work that, that Super Friendly does, I think the only thing that I can sell on is the quality of the work. So I have to work with people I trust. Um, and the thing that I've been doing just sort of naturally since, I guess, since I started in design is like, I love meeting people. I love people who are doing interesting work and I like having conversations with them. And I just kind of like log them in my head, like, oh, this person's doing this interesting work over here. Um, let me Let me think about what we could do together in the future. And it might not be for a couple of years until I can come up with something that we could do together. But I just like to kind of keep track of what people are doing so that anytime a project comes along, you know, my, the reaction that I want is like, oh, I know the perfect person for this. Let me give them a call and see if they're available and interested. So, so it's sort of like a, a collection game. You know, like I like, <laughs> I like meeting people. I like kind of remembering what they're up to and kind of keep checking in on, on what, they're, what they're up to over the years. And then ideally when something comes along, that's great. You know, it'll be a good fit for all of us. That's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun too. Um, yeah, I like it. That's cool. So talk to me about your, your clients. I'm, I'm curious to know, um, what are some of the biggest non-design challenges you face when, when going into a new client? Yeah. So a lot of the clients that we work with are in the media industry, are in publishing, big content providers, you know, news sites, things like that. And um, the way that I generally talk about our work is that we often work on things that people use a lot. So that might be an app that people will open multiple times a day, or it might be a site that people will visit, you know, in a, a, you know a couple times an hour or even or, or something like that. And I think a lot of the challenges there exist around people. You know, they, they, they rarely exist around graphic design. I mean, I think it's easy enough to convince someone that this is the design that 
that we should have, or this is the UI design that we should have. And it's easy enough to just be like, all right, they don't like green. We're not going to use green. Um, <laughs> those are those are almost never the big problems on a project. Generally, the clients that we work with are working on really high stakes things. So it might be something that is going to make or break their business, or it might be a new product that, that maybe opens up a new, run, a new line of revenue for them. And so those often come with high stakes, which means that people are generally tense around those things. And so, so what I try to do is to, I try to start every project by just kind of setting a good tone for the project, a tone that's about, you know, we're here to serve you. We're here to help you. You know, you can help us too. We're going to collaborate. We're going to work on this stuff together. And then you're not going to be alone in, in your in your challenges or in your problems or in the things that you're trying to to create. I think like design has a good role in helping to solve that kind of stuff. You know, it's almost like it, I know a lot of people joke about this and, and it is a little bit funny, but, <laughs> but it's also serious too that it's, you know, design work is like therapy, right? A, a lot of it is like assuring your client that it's going to be okay, that you have the expertise to help them get something done. And sometimes you got to be honest with them if you actually don't think that's the case. So sometimes you got to be like, you guys know that this is not a good idea, right? <laughs> and, and so I think the biggest challenges come with, with honesty. And I think if you can get around the fact that like you're always going to be honest, you're going to be you're going to have integrity when you're working with clients. I feel like that solves a good portion of the battles. It's like if my clients know that everybody on my team is going to be honest with them and help them to the best of our ability, even if helping them means we could try to talk them out of a thing that, or try to talk them out of a path that's going to lead down a, a bad road. Um, I, I think that those are those are great takeaways in, in a relationship. Mm, right. So it's so interesting because it's it's they bring you in for design, but so much of it is about trust. Absolutely. Because I can't design anything good or any, anybody on my team can't do good work if they don't trust us. Because if clients are going to be nitpicking or if they're going to be second guessing, maybe we weren't the right partner for them in the first place. Like I think I think the sales process is so important to good design and good development and good technology um, because that's where trust is really established. So I love projects where clients are like, we've been following your work for years or we saw you know, one of your team members at a conference and like they're because they're bought in and they trust us. So we're, we have a lot of liberty to do do great things with them. Clients that are like, you know, we sent an RFP to 20 firms and we don't trust anybody yet. And we're going to put you through the ringer. Oftentimes, you know, trust doesn't come along with that stuff. It's a lot harder to generate trust there. So I think that's a big portion of, of what I try to focus on in projects is, you know, is there trust here? And if not, maybe the client is actually better served looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on that note, what advice do you have for companies who, you know, they might be struggling to connect with their customers that decided they want the outside design expertise? What makes for a good client? What do you look for? And, and um, you know, on the flip side of that, too, what are things that you, you know, are red flags? Yeah, totally. So I think the red flags is an easier one. So I'll start with that. <laughs> red flags, you know, it's it certainly trust, like trust issues. Anytime I see something, it's like, that's probably going to be a trust issue. I look out for that. That's not to say that I'll turn down those projects, but I'm like, all right, I'm going to log this one as a we should dig more into this. So a good example of that might be, um, you know, we worked at three other design firms and we didn't really like their work. So we're looking for a fourth one. Like, well, all right, well, maybe that could be the design firm. So I, I'll certainly be open-minded to that, mm. but maybe it's you, <laughs> you know, like, maybe, like there's, there's a pattern there that's existing. Maybe it's, maybe you're a tough client to work with uh, and maybe tough in a good way or tough in a bad way, but tough nonetheless. So I try to look out for that kind of stuff. I try to look out for clients that have unrealistic expectations. You know, we want to build a Facebook clone and we have $2,000, you know, <laughs> like, like those are, those generally point to the fact that they're not sure about how this work gets done and how to invest in good work. So I look out for that kind of stuff. 
on kind of the good side, what I look for, you know, things that are like great signs from clients is when they are really good at their business and very, very open-minded about things that aren't their business. So they're going to trust us to be good designers and engineers and information architects and strategists on the digital side, because that's not what they do well, but they're really good at, you know, whatever it is, marine biology or building robots or furniture making or whatever it is that their business is. So they're really good at that thing. We could always look to them for, for that kind of stuff, you know, for the expertise there, but that they're very open-minded when it comes to design. Because that's the way that I like my teams to run too. Like we're going to be really good at the stuff that we know how to do well. But when we're working with a client who is, uh, you know, making hardware for, for machines, we don't know anything about that. So we got to look to them for their expertise. So I find that, that that makes for good teams. It's like when both sides are really good at what they do and then also open-minded to what the other, the other uh, team does. I think that adds to, that makes like an additive experience where we're sort of building on top of each other's expertise and that we're both making you know, together we're making something that neither of us could do separately. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So you also have this, because that's not enough, you also have this apprenticeship <laughs> program. Can you talk a little bit about Super Friendly Academy? Yeah, totally. So, you know, part of the downside of having a company that's a one employee company is that I get lonely. <laughs> you know, there's nobody in the office, like Skype calls only do so much. Uh, so I, you know, I, I like kind of surrounding myself with people. And one thing that I found almost accidentally is that I'm pretty good at teaching people. And, and especially when it comes to the early stuff in design or technology, I feel like that stuff is actually really easy to teach and really easy to learn. So I think that that's like sort of like low hanging fruit. So um, I started an apprenticeship program kind of accidentally, uh, when I started Super Friendly, because my brother-in-law was like, I have never had a career in my life. You know, we were just moving into this kind of fixer-upper house when we moved back to Philadelphia from Brooklyn. And my brother-in-law was like, look, I'll fix up your house. I'll do all the demolition and the renovation and all that stuff so that you can move in um, if you teach me how to be a web developer. So we were, I was like, all right, I guess that's like, sure, <laughs> awesome. let's give it a shot. Yeah. And so we didn't really have a plan. And, uh, and, Nine months later, well, I mean, you got a portfolio that's good enough to get a job. You, you know, you've got the skills. Why don't you try applying for a job somewhere? And so that, you know, so he was the first apprentice, and it all kind of spurned from that. And so, Super Friendly Academy is essentially a nine-month apprenticeship where I work with people that have very little or no experience in design or tech. People that came from fields like, you know, like being general contractors or working retail or being substitute teachers or things like that. And, um, and turning them into designers and developers and project managers and things in the digital space. Um, and I find that, that nine months is generally a good amount of time to be able to take someone from not a lot of experience with that craft to being a good entry-level professional there. Um, so it's kind of split up into three parts. The first part is kind of the basic training part where the first three months, we just, te- we just like work on tools, you know, for a designer apprentice, we talk about, you know, the first day is like, here, we'll go through Photoshop or Sketch and we'll go through all the tools in the toolbar. This one's called the Move Tool. This this one's called the vector tool. This one's called the marquee tool. This is the shortcut key. For a developer apprentice, we'll go through, you know, here's how you write your first line of HTML. This is called a tag. This is called a, an attribute. This is called a value. These are quotation marks. This is an angle bracket. Um, and, then, and then we just go through tools for the first three months so that they stop kind of fighting the tools and start to be more, more fluent in them. Then the next three months, the three to six months, is, is kind of like just building up a body of work. So how do they work on things like designing sites or designing apps or building those things? And we start really small. So we start with the first assignment generally for a lot of apprentices is, you know, you're going to be in charge of the footer for this website. And that's it. That's that's all you're responsible for. And I have them price that for me as, as any contractor would. And we talk about pricing because some of the apprentices go on to be freelancers. Some of them need to know how to negotiate a salary. And so that kind of business mindedness, I think, will help them in the long run. So we go over that stuff. And, and if they price it too low, I'll, I'll, 
coach them on why it's too low. And if they price it too high, I'll coach them on why it's too high. And so kind of develop the, the professionalism and the business skills around the craft too. Um, and then the last, the last third of it, the six to nine month mark is really about compiling a portfolio, identifying companies you may want to work with, identifying what those companies are interested in from potential applicants, going and applying, um, sending resumes out. We do interview prep and training and, and things like that. And then ideally at the end of that process, they've got a job kind of working somewhere else and, and as a, as a full-time, maybe entry-level, maybe mid-level, mid-level designer, developer, something like that. That's awesome. So how many people do you work with annually? I mean, it, it, it can't be that <laughs> right. many because yeah, totally. there's only one of you, but um, what yeah, a cool I, I like experience. A Certainly, you're totally right that it's a, it definitely is a problem of scale. Um, and, and so I started it with one at a time. So in the last uh, almost five years that Super Friendly has been open, we've had, I've had 10 apprentices. So it's about, it's an average of about two a year. Um, I started one at a time because I was like, I don't even know how I would do this with more than one at a time. And I started to notice, you know, like the, the efficiencies that are really obvious, but I just, this never occurred to me. Like I've had, you know, three apprentices at a time, you know, for a couple of, of, of months. And what I found was the ones that were a little bit farther along, sometimes they help the ones that aren't as far along. And, and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that that actually happened in the real world. So I think that, you know, as I think about how to scale that, that's certainly one thing that I'm going to try and take advantage of is maybe how, like, how does it, how does it work to stagger those, you know, those apprenticeships so that it's not like a big cohort starting at once, but maybe it's one that starts every month and then everybody can kind of help the help one that's a month behind. And, and, you know, they don't, it's not dependent on me to be doing all of the teaching or, or doing all of the, you know, the instructing. Cool. Very cool. So what have you learned from participants, whether about them or about yourself through this process? Uh, definitely one of the, th- the the major learnings for me, and I think for them, I hope for them, is that the the value is not the craft learning, right? There's so many things where you can learn craft, like there's books, there's online courses, there's Treehouse, there's General Assembly, there's all these great things that le- can let you learn how to code Ruby on Rails or how to design, you know, do UI design or learn flat design or whatever. I think the the tougher thing, the one that everybody experiences and experiences in a different way is that there's always some issue beneath that, right? So for some people, it's self-confidence. For some people, it's time management. For some people, it's, you know, feeling like a professional. For some people, it's imposter syndrome. So those are really the things that we work on. That's the thing that takes nine months to, to kind of conquer or to kind of work through. You know, learning learning a, a programming language, you could do that in 12 weeks. That's why there's all these boot camps out there that are pretty, that are fairly successful. Um, but it's, it's really becoming a professional. Like that's the thing that takes a while. That's the thing that you need to practice and, and do kind of over and over and, you know, fall down and get back up and fall down and get back up. So I think that's the thing. That's the reason that I, I think about it and go like, I don't know how, I don't know how this could take any less than nine months. You know, I'd love to do a two year apprenticeship. Um, cause I think we, you know, I, we could just fit a lot more in there, but anything less than nine months, I'm like, I'm not even sure that we would be able to tackle those kind of issues in, in less time. Mm, well, and it's that one-on-one. I think one of the things that I keep seeing over and over again is what really seems to, as you say, add the value is the mentoring that people get. Yeah. Interesting. So on the flip side of that, what do you look for in participants? Oh yeah. So that's a, that's a tough one because, you know, generally if you think about how designers are hired or developers are hired, you know, I I worked at a bunch of agencies that had big teams before I've hired people, you know, both design and and developer and project managers. And generally you look at prior work, right? You look at a portfolio or you look at somebody's GitHub or you look at, you know, you you have them tell, tell you stories about the things that they've done before. So with an apprentice, especially one that hasn't come from this industry, you know, one that's come from, you know, working retail, what do you look for? And the thing that I've found, or at least so, far arrived at is sort of look for motivation. Like what is, what is their motivation to get them through this? Because at some point during the apprenticeship, they're going to mess up. They're going to do something 
that they haven't done before and they're going to mess it up. And then, and really the key there is how do they get over that thing? I've had some apprentices start, mess up and never come back, right? Like I just don't hear from them again ever, which is like crazy to me, <laughs> but it happens. And, and I, I understand it because they're hard things. Like they're mental challenges that you're facing and sometimes they're too daunting to face. Sometimes you need a year to recover from that stuff. So totally understandable. But somebody with the right amount of motivation can get over that, can say, all right, I screwed up today. You know, I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to get better and I'm going to learn for this and I'm going to add that to my skill set. So I, I try to look for motivation. And what I initially thought my, my first hypothesis about it was like, well, you know, the, the more motivated, the better. Like if they like if, if there's got a ton riding on this, then great. Then they're probably going to be the most motivated to get through. And what I've actually found, um, which was surprising to me, is that there's actually a level of too much motivation. Like there's a, a level where there's too much pressure riding on riding on the apprenticeship. And so so as an example, I had one apprentice who was, uh, and, and he's, you know, he's sort of given me permission to share this story too. So I'm not telling anybody's business. Um, I had one apprentice who was struggling with a drug addiction and the apprenticeship for him was a thing that he was like, I really need this to work because this is the thing that's going to get me over my drug addiction. Mm -hmm. And me being, you know, so naive and foolish. I'm like, well, yeah, cool. Like, yeah, I can, I can help that. And, and it's not true at all. You know, like I, it, like it was too much riding on it so that when he was successful, you know, the things that he did that were great, like were really great. But the things that he did that where he where he messed up or made a mistake, those were a lot heavier than they normally would have been because there was so much pressure riding on this. So the thing that I've learned is that there's a there's kind of a sweet spot somewhere in the middle there where you're not too motivated, but you you have enough motivation to kind of get you through the tough times. And I'm not sure how to quantify that yet. I wish I had a better sort of like scale or rubric for quantifying that. Uh, right now, it's just sort of like a gut feeling. And sometimes it's right. And sometimes it's wrong. Um, but the one, as I look at the patterns, the apprentices that have sort of made it all the way through are ones that have the sort of like right level of, of motivation. And by, by making it through, I don't mean that they started and then they got a job at the end of it. You know, some started and got a completely different job. And I count that as a success. Some started and feel like they're in a much better place than they were before. You know, even if they didn't get a job, I, I count that as a, as a success. So I think I, I try to look for that motivation that's going to make them go all the way through and come out the other end with something, even if it's not a job, but something that they didn't have before. Mm, it's interesting because so much of that is resiliency plays into that too. And, oh, yes. and just being self-aware to say, you know, to get through like what you're talking about, to get through it is not to say that you all end up in the same spot, right? It's about exactly. yep. learning along the way and then figuring it out from there. That's interesting. Exactly. What what happened to that participant, if you don't mind me asking? No, I, I don't mind at all. So basically what he did was he got about six months through and he was like, you know what? I have some basic needs that I need to take care of before I complete this. And I was like, you know, good for you. Like that was the first time in the six month that he's admitted to that and realized that. And he checked into rehab and, uh, and he moved to a new city and he's doing great, you know? And so I look at that and I'm like, it doesn't matter if he's not a front end developer right now. You know, it matters that he's doing, you know, he's doing something and he feels better about his life and he's clean and he's sober. Like those are the things that are a lot more important. Right. Right. Absolutely. Interesting. Wow. So uh, you mentioned this earlier, the whole issue of pricing, which is, is sort of this, mm -hmm. uh, this strange spot for a lot of people. I don't know why, but I see it a lot with folks that work for themselves. It's, it's an emotional thing, really. Um, totally. But so you wrote a book on pricing and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the lessons you've learned through your years of running your own company. Um, things that go wrong, things that, that off, you know, are there patterns of behavior or things that people can kind of look out for? Yeah, totally. So I wrote a book on pricing. It's called Pricing Design. And the basic premise of the book is that people pay for things that they really want, right? Like not a, <laughs> not an unobvious concept. 
But sometimes we forget that when we're pricing in business. Like we think it's got to be too like so businessy. Like I got to plug a, a bunch of numbers into a spreadsheet that does some fancy multiplication and adds some padding and accounts for this percentage and subtracts this thing and then a discount thing and then the magic number that gets you know, output from the other side, then that's a good qualified price. And the truth is, it, could, it actually couldn't be farther from the truth. Like, as you described, pricing is emotional. You know, we buy things because we want them. We buy things because we like them. We buy things that are logical and illogical. And that's how people's minds work. Whether or not you're buying at, on behalf of a business or you're selling on behalf of a business, like it's still people selling to people and people buying from people at the end of the day. So there's a lot about pricing psychology. There's a lot about the way that people think about money and value that I think we don't take advantage of as designers and developers and business owners. So that's ba that's a basic premise of the book is just that like, you know, try to understand what you're selling and what your client wants to buy. Um, I, I'll take like web design as an example. A lot of web design agencies and shops and freelancers, they think that they're selling websites and, they're, and no one ever is selling a website. No one buys a website. Nobody wants to buy a website. They buy the thing that the website will do for them, right? Like the website is a thing that will let me sell these, you know, cool uh, this cool jewelry that I make. Right? And so if I didn't have a website, I couldn't sell my jewelry more effectively. Well, that's the thing that people are buying. You know, They're buying the fact that more people will see their brand or more people will understand the product that they're selling or more people will have access to, you know, to information that they didn't have before. Well, and what's the value of that thing? So a lot, of, a lot in the book kind of focuses on that. Like, how do you ask your client questions or a prospective buyer, a prospective customer? How do you ask them questions that help you understand what they're actually buying? How do you understand how it's valuable to them? How do you quantify that? then, right? If they say like, well, really what I'm buying is I work every weekend and I don't want to work weekends anymore. So I want to hire you to build a tool that automates some of my work so that I don't have to be here on the weekend. Great. That's cool that you understand that. But how do you turn that into a price? So a lot of the book kind of focuses on like how you actually identify those things and then how you turn them into prices that people are happy to pay. You know, And what I found in doing that is actually people are, are willing to pay 10 times, 20 times, 100 times the market rate if you can capture that value and say, this is what we think you're buying. Is that right? Like, can you ratify that for us? And if they're like, yes, that's exactly it. And you say, how much is that worth to you? And they're like, everything. Like, that's worth everything to me, right? You can command those prices. And then you, you, have, you actually have to be good enough to be able to deliver on those things. And if you can deliver on it, no matter if the price is skyrocketed high, if they feel like they got value from it, then both parties kind of feel like they profit there. Mm, that's the magic, right? That balance right there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in any transaction, both people have to feel like they're profiting. Otherwise, they're, like the, tra the transaction wouldn't exist. So, so you've got to be focused on that too. Like you could say, well, I charge a hundred bucks an hour and your client could be like, all right, well, we'll pay that. And if you end up charging them a hundred thousand dollars to build a site that only generates them $5,000 of extra revenue, they're going to feel like they got cheated. Even though you could justify your hourly rate and you could say, oh, this is the market rate, this is the industry price, they're still going to feel like they got cheated because they don't feel like they profited there. Mm, so interesting. So much of it is is perception too. Totally. There's, I've been like in researching this book, I've came across so many interesting stories about pricing psychology and the way that people's minds work. It's just it's like fascinating. I don't know if these stories are real or, or fake, but I, I read this story about uh, price anchoring, which is the idea that when people see one price, that's the thing that they compare it against. So as an example, and I don't know, again, I don't know if this is a myth or if this is whatever urban legend, but I think in the 90s, Wendy's had a double cheeseburger <laughs> and a single cheeseburger. And the single cheeseburger was 99 cents and the double cheeseburger was $1.29. And the double cheeseburger wasn't selling very well. 
So what they did was they introduced a triple cheeseburger for $1.69 or something like that. And they actually didn't expect the triple cheeseburger to sell. What they wanted to use it for was a price anchor. So people would look at the triple cheeseburger and they would go, wow, three patties for $1.69. That's outrageous. I would never pay that. But you know what? This $1.29 you know, for two patties, that sounds pretty good. And so since introducing that triple cheeseburger, the double cheeseburger sale skyrocketed just because they produced a, a price because they created a price anchor that, you know, they changed the price anchor. Um, and so like there's a bunch of stories like that that I've come across that are just really fascinating about like how people's minds work and how they interpret value and all that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, you think about it, your own personal experiences, we all do it. Right. And you yep. kind of and even if you're retelling the story to somebody later, you think to yourself, like, wow, was, do I feel like I was just scammed? <laughs> like, does this make any sense exactly. whatsoever? Oh, yep, exactly. gosh. Yeah, it's interesting. Wow. So you're you're speaking at the O'Reilly Design Conference in March about the ever expanding list of skills designers are expected to learn these days. And mm. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit and we could probably talk for days about <laughs> your take on you know, the whole idea that designers should learn to code, designers should learn X, design, designers should learn, you know, business. Wh wh where do you stand on that? What do you think about the, that conversation going on these days? Yeah, so I'm really excited about this conference. I'm excited for this talk. This is the talk I'm going to be doing uh, throughout the year at a bunch of different conferences, too. And it's called Should Designers. Um, there's this there's this debate that breaks out on Twitter or <laughs> Facebook or wherever designers are talking every couple of months about, like, should designers code? And, like, people are like, vehemently uh, argue for, for both sides of this. And I'm in the camp that says, like, should designers blank, right? Insert anything there? Yeah. And the answer is probably yes, right? Because it, mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's just to say, should you be getting better as a human and learning more things? Absolutely. And there's no, no pain if you don't, right? If you don't learn to code and you're a designer, that's okay. But I want to try to make the argument in this talk for why those things are actually beneficial to you as a designer. Some people see that as not part of a designer's job. And I see that as very much part of a designer's job that actually helps you. It helps your teams. It helps the products that you're building. So this talk is really about like, how do you manage this growing like should designers learn code? And then should they learn business? And then should they learn sales? And should they be strategists? And then should they learn Ruby on Rails? And should they learn backend? Like the answer is yes, if you can, you know, if you can do that, absolutely. But how do you prioritize that stuff? So in the talk, I'm going to be, I'm going to be sharing some stories of stuff that I've learned along the way of doing projects for, you know, as, as part of super friendly teams and how I've seen other people kind of handle that. Like how do they, how does, how do designers that code work differently than designers who don't code? Can both of them be equally as effective? And I'm going to try to make a case for how coding specifically can kind of help a designer skill set and how that could actually help influence a product and, and product direction and move even faster and more efficiently without losing quality. So a lot of the talk is going to be kind of centered around, around that idea about like, how do you prioritize this? Should you learn Xcode first or should you learn HTML or should you learn, you know, strategy or should you learn lean UX? And how does that fit into this? Like, you know, people are saying agile is going to help and people are saying lean is going to help. How did all that stuff kind of fit in? So ideally, you know, my, my, my goal for this talk is to help designers kind of make sense of all these terms that are floating out there that they're like, I'm willing to learn one or some of these, but where should I start? So hopefully I'll be able to shed some light on that. That's awesome. So I think I know the answer to your next question, to this next question, but maybe not. And you can't answer with, it depends. That's all I'm going to okay. say. I promise um, I won't. Um, but you can, if you really want to. <laughs> um, uh, so do you think that this, this idea that, you know, designers are expected to know more about more is helping or hurting the profession? Both. <laughs> <do you> like <laughs> well done. My own version. Yeah. Um, I think that 
Okay, so I think about it less from a profession standpoint, from an industry standpoint, and more from a personal standpoint. I, I try to look at it when I'm when I'm mentoring designers or when I'm working with with designers and coaching them. Uh, for some of them, it hurts them to to grow their skill sets um, because some people are really good at being focused and being really good at one thing, and it actually hurts them to distract them with other things. And so I think it really depends on the person, and and that's the thing I try to look for in apprentices, in you know, in designers that I'm mentoring, in in teams that I'm coaching. What is what is right for that person, and even more qualified, what is right for that person right now? So for some designers, something that I'll identify is well, they'd actually be better suited to learn more things and actually be more of a generalist. For other designers, they're much more suited to be like the go-to person on that particular thing, like the hired gun that's like the expert at you know, what, whatever it is, be using 3D tools in Photoshop and like just being just so good at that, that they know everything about that. They're the resource for that at their company. And so context certainly affects all of this. Like, where do you work and how does it affect your company? And certainly how does it affect the industry? But I like to start by thinking about how does it help that particular person? Um, I think because that's that's a good way to start, because if something helps the industry, but hurts the person, then it's ultimately hurtful, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I try to start with the person themselves and say, like, all right, what's going to be good for that person and help that person grow? And the best way because you can grow deep and or you can grow wide neither of those are better than the other i think it's just depending on where that person wants to grow so in one-on-ones a lot what i'll ask is like you know what what feels right for you you know where's your energy that's one of the things i use a lot in in coaching teams and, and mentoring designers i'll ask them you know every day where's your energy today like where do you what are you passionate about today like do you want to work on this thing or that thing do you want to grow your skills or deepen one and try to let that person's interest and energy kind of dictate their growth path a little bit or, or, or at least lay it out for them. Um, and it can move from day to day. It can change from day to day. And I, I feel like that kind of organicness allows designers to grow in ways that are great for them. You know, and then as a side effect, hopefully that will that will help the, their jobs, you know, their organization that they work with, and then largely the industry. But the industry can't grow if people are hurting. If people are damaged and people aren't growing on their own, of course the industry is going to be is going to be damaged. So I think that there's a, a little bit too much focus on how do we help our industry and less focus on how do we actually help the people that make up this industry. Mm, really great point. Really great point. You are a therapist. <laughs> you know, it's come from years of me being in therapy and being in like, it's like doing counseling. Like I, I've, I learned a lot from that. I think that psychology and therapy and, and counseling is really, really important to people's health. I think people's health is really important because if we're taking care of people, if we're taking care of each other, then all the great side effects will come from that, that we really want, right? That our industry growing, our profession getting better, us being more recognized, the world improving. And I think, you know, <laughs> today more than ever in, in history, I think that's, that's an important thing. Thing. Right. Yeah. The focus on people, it has to, it has to be there. Yeah. Um, so one final question for you beyond your own projects and clients, uh, what, what people and projects are grabbing your attention these days? Mm. So I guess, like I just described, that changes for me from day to day. Like I try to follow where my energy and my interest is at from day to day and week to week and month to month. And certainly right now, uh, the, the election happened last week and it's all, it's just about all I can think about. Mm -hmm. So right now what's kind of grabbing my attention is what can I do? What are the skills that I have and how could that help contribute to a better world? Even if that world is, is a microcosm, even if that world is just like the handful of people around me, my family, my friends, my community. And then also, you know, ideally, maybe a larger than that, maybe it's my city, maybe it's my state, maybe it's my country, maybe it's the world, um, but kind of starting small there. So I'm looking at all these things, like I'm looking at really deeply into 
civic service into organizations like, you know, ATF and the US Digital Service that are doing great things there. I'm looking into what people are doing on the advocacy front. I'm also looking into like what's happening in the private sector that, that that's actually helping publicly. So as an example of that, I have a friend named John Schlossberg. Uh, I forget the name of the company that he started, excuse me, at the time, but it's a, it's a really great app that he made that basically helps to regulate people's income. So it's designed for people that have fluctuating income. Maybe they're contractors or maybe they work hourly or something like that. And they don't make a lot of income. And some weeks they have extra and some weeks they have not enough to pay their bills. So what this thing does, as far as I understand what this app does, is it takes the weeks that they have extra income, puts that extra income away for them. And then in weeks where they have uh, lower income, it kind of gives that money back to them to help them regulate their income a little bit more. And I think like it's such a simple idea, um, but it's but it's not government based. It's not like a government program. It's some guy you know who had this idea for it and used his skills as a designer and an engineer and built a team around this to build a company that solves this really this social problem. You know this this great thing. So that's the kind of stuff that's catching my attention right now. Is like what could I do? What could I? How could I use my skills to do stuff like that? Like you know I could go and join the military, but honestly I wouldn't. Like, like my skills wouldn't help there. Like I would just be, I would be at a, at a disadvantage. So how can I take the gifts that I have, the talents that I have, the things that I'm actually strong at and actually help be a multiplier for good, for good things in the world or in my community? And what are other people that are doing that? So I'm just right now, I'm just kind of collecting that stuff. Like who's doing that and how can I be inspired by that stuff? And then once I've collected enough of it, okay, how can I apply that to my own life and to my own, you know, little world to help make a difference? Yeah, no, that's great. We're all in this together. You're, it's, it's a, it's a great way to, to spend your energies, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So I feel like that's a way that I can be productive. It keeps me focused, and uh, and um, you know, hopefully, I can sort of share that and and spread that idea to other people and see if it takes off. Awesome, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can reach Dan on Twitter at Dan Mall. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a positive review through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud.